Good morning, friends. Welcome to the last Sunday edition of Different Church in June. It is the end of June, and I'm excited that you are here. We have, we're talking about Romans today. <laughs> Our scripture passage is from Romans, and to me, Romans is one of the most exciting, if not one of the most complicated books in the Bible. And it's full of the philosophy, theology. It has arguments that are chapters long. Um, it can be hard to follow, but its meanings are profound. So we are going to tackle just a little bit of Romans today. And perhaps you will discover that you love Romans. You never know. <laughs> so before we jump in, we have an opening prayer today to kind of center ourselves before we dive into this passage. So let's pray together. Holy God, you did not create life in abundance only for us to hoard it and destroy it. You did not gift us with immense creativity only for us to fear change, risk, and new ideas. You did not give us the ability to dream only so we could settle for what is already. Come renew our imagination and our excitement. Make our hopes bold and our efforts brave as we live a life of resurrection. Amen. Now, our verses in Romans, uh, we are going to read Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. So four verses from the NLT translation, starting in verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in death? For we died and we were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So, to help us think through this passage, we are first going to think through a story. So one of the first lines in these verses that we just read is, should we keep on sitting so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Now, most people have heard Jesus' parable, Jesus' story, of the prodigal son. But, but if you haven't heard, or if perhaps it's been a while, I'm going to give you a recap. <laughs> a Cliff Notes version of the story of the prodigal son. So there's a father. He has two boys, an older son and a younger son. The younger son decides he doesn't need to wait until his father's dead to get his inheritance. He wants it right now. He wants to enjoy life. So he twists his father's arm. He takes the money. He runs off. And unfortunately, he goes and spends it all. <laughs> and he comes back in just utter disgrace, having lost all the money. And when I say lost all the money, like he was partying it up. He was living his best life. And then he lost all his money. And of course, with it, all the friends that came with that money. And he found himself the only job that would hire him would be as a pig herder or a pig tender. And he didn't have any food. And he found himself being jealous of what the actual pigs were eating. So if you don't know, or perhaps you did not grow up on a farm or something like that, pigs eat slop, which is kind of like leftovers and it's like stuff you'd put in the compost bin. <laughs> and it's, some pigs don't eat that, right? And pigs can't eat grain, but they usually eat slop. So he was jealous of the pig's slop. That's how hungry he was. And he thought to himself, oh my gosh, even the pigs at my dad's house are treated better than I am treated right now. So at least if I just go home, perhaps he'll let me work there so that I can have enough food to eat. So he decides to go home. Even though he's in utter disgrace, he wasted all the money, he's just a terrible person, he decides, okay, I'm going to go home. 
and he starts the journey and as he nears his house he is surprised because his dad runs out to meet him welcomes him is so happy that he's home and then throws a big party in his honor because he's home again and they hadn't heard from him in so long and they were so excited he's welcomed back as a son even though he didn't deserve it at all even though he wasted the money he wasted his inheritance he his dad welcomes him back as a son of course, the other brother wasn't super happy about this, <laughs> as you can imagine, but he's welcome back to his son anyways. He's not put on like the payroll. He said, you belong here. You're my son. So that's the story. But how this applies to us is now we're going to imagine we fast forward a couple of years later. <laughs> so everything's settled back down. Life is boring again. Life is just a humdrum existence of feeding pigs, doing farm work, getting up in the morning, spending time with family. And his older brother probably tolerates him again. Perhaps they're even friends again. His dad's getting older and he finds himself reminiscing about those good old days. He had such a party. It was so wonderful. He had all this money. And then when he was down and out, his dad forgave him and threw him a party anyways. Wouldn't it be nice to have another party like that in his honor? Wouldn't, what would happen if he helped himself to some money and ran off and went crazy? and then came back. Maybe he would get another party. Wouldn't that be nice to get another party? Even though the whole thing was his fault and he didn't deserve it at all? Now, when we put it like that, that sounds absurd, right? Of course, no. The wise thing to do would not to be run off with more money and waste it all and then come back in the hopes that they would forgive you and bring you back again. But this is exactly what a lot of people's relationship to God is. We think God will forgive me because God has to forgive me. So Paul is asking, should we keep on sinning? Should we keep on repeating this pattern so that God can show us more and more of God's grace? And he's using this question to advance his main argument. And so we're just going to give a quick overview of the next couple of chapters in Romans in case you want to dive into this on your own time. So... Paul is kind of retelling the story of Exodus, where the Israelites left Egypt, they exodused, <laughs> they left Egypt and they were going to the promised land. So in Romans 6, which we just read the very beginning of, it describes how Christians came through the waters of baptism to the other side, which are just like the Israelites who came through the waters of the Red Sea to enter new freedom, leaving Egypt, moving towards the promised land. Romans 7 then tackles the question of what happened at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where you got the Ten Commandments. Um, the Israelites worshipped a golden calf instead of God. There was a whole debacle. <laughs> and the problems that resulted. And then Paul reinterprets this to being Jesus is the fulfillment of these laws. And then Romans 8 describes the Christian life in terms of God leading his people home to their inheritance, which turns out to be the entire redeemed creation. And Paul is warning them against their grumbling because we know the Israelites can be a little bit of complainers. And in chapter eight, he's like, you don't want to go back, do you? Do you really want to go back to eating what pigs were fed? Is that what you want? Then quit complaining. So why did Paul structure it like this? This is one of his chapters long arguments that's very difficult to cover in like 25 minutes. <laughs> so the reason that Paul is structuring it like this is because Paul hasn't forgotten what, that what God accomplished in Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. So there's this arc in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that God made promises to Abraham at the very beginning that Paul is saying now they are finally fulfilled in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. 
So in Genesis 15, way at the beginning, God promised Abraham that after a period of slavery, he would lead Israel out of that and into a new land that would be their home. And Paul is taking that promise and interpreting it in Romans 6 through 8 and saying, this is what God was really promising to Abraham. Paul was reinterpreting the Old Testament to find its meaning in Jesus, which by the way is shocking. (laughs) I know we're used to it. We're like, oh yes, of course, everything points to Jesus. But for the people hearing this for the first time, they would have just been blown away. They had never heard anything like it. Nobody was expecting Jesus to be the answer. Even though many, a great number of people in Paul's day were in fact thinking about a new exodus. They were thinking about hoping for, planning for a new act of God to get rid of Israel's oppressors. Because remember, at the time that this was written, Israel was under the thumb of Rome and Rome was smooshing them down. And Paul agrees with this expectation. Paul is like, yes, God is doing something new. God is going to do a work of liberation. We are going to be free except <laughs> it's not the freedom from Israel of Israel from Rome it is the freedom and the liberation of the entire cosmos from sin corruption and death so paul is basically saying that what god did through jesus the messiah is the true fulfillment of the hope of israel it's the true fulfillment of all those promises made to abraham a long 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 time ago It's not like Israel was left behind at some earlier stage of the plan. The salvation that Jesus, that God accomplished through Jesus, through the Messiah, was the goal of everything that happened before. So when we think about, this is a big argument (laughs) that Paul is making and a very new argument. Like I said, the readers, the hearers of this would have been like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) I need like years to process this information. So when Paul asks a question at the very beginning of chapter six, he's setting it up for the whole argument all the way through chapter eight. And he says, why would we keep on sinning? Is it better to keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving us and do what God's supposed to do? No. (laughs) Paul's answer is no, (laughs) of course not. Paul is basically saying, when you become a person of faith, you move from one type of humanity to another. And you shouldn't think of yourself in this original mode of humanity ever again. More particularly, when you become a person of faith, when you become a Christian, you die and rise with the Messiah. Now, that can be a confusing statement because literally we're not dying, right? (laughs) We're not rising. But this is one of Paul's very central arguments in Romans. And this is the first time we encounter it in the book of Romans. That because the Messiah, Jesus, represents his people... What is true of the Messiah is true of them. This is why Paul continually says things like, we are in the Messiah. We are becoming, we're going into the Messiah. We are moving into the Messiah. So there's all of these phrases in Romans that sound like that. And basically what he's saying is, because Jesus is the representative of everybody who has faith, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. And in particular... Paul talks about baptism, which is the act of dying and rising. So baptism is this symbol where you get dunked in the water to represent Jesus dying and being rose, being rose, rising, (laughs) rising again to new life. So when you get baptized, even though it is a symbol, it means you're having a change of status. 
You're no longer located in sin. You're no longer located in this old version of humanity. Grace met you there, not so that you can stay there, (laughs) but so that you can become something new, something different. And living like this requires that you make actual changes in your life, right? This isn't like a shocking concept, Um, but perhaps a metaphor in case we're confused is if you were to get married, you might not feel any different, although I hope you will, but you might not feel any different after you get married, but you just entered into something that requires you to live differently. You can no longer live as though you're a single person. You can no longer only have regard for yourself. You can no longer um, run around and lie and you can't, you have to value that other person as much or even more as you value your own self. And so even though you may not feel different, something drastic has changed in your life because now you're intertwined with this other person. And once you're baptized, this is the same thing, right? You can try, you can try to shirk your responsibility (laughs) or pretend that you don't have a new status of humanity after all. But what you can't do is get unbaptized. It already happened. And now Paul is saying, essentially, don't even think about trying to go back to Egypt. Don't even think about running off again and coming back. Think carefully about who you are now and what God has done for you. And then set off for the promised land. Set off for freedom. Now, this was all a very, (laughs) that was a large amount of theology and thinking (laughs) that we just went through in a what, 10 minutes, a short amount of time. And if you're feeling a little like you drank from a fire hose, that's okay. This is the stuff that seminary students spend hours arguing about and uh, years writing dissertations on. We are just doing a quick synopsis so that then we can think about it in terms of our actual lives. So quite often, when we think about starting a new faith life, a new faith journey, The primary focus is placed on specific external actions. And what I mean by that is, for example, you're a Christian now, so you need to quit lying, cheating, stealing, (laughs) being bitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'm all for that, actually. (laughs) The main standards by which we measure our actions is love. So we know how to love because we have a very good example, and that is Jesus. And he loved us so much that he sacrificed his life for us. So it's not simply, it is simply not a loving act to treat another person like they're an object. It's simply not a loving act to gossip about someone else, to use another person for our own needs, whether that be emotionally, physically, sexually, without regard for their unique personhood and their status as created beings made by God. And that's all good. I'm here for all of that. (laughs) What I'm not here for is that sometimes, often perhaps in some churches, this goes down the path of sounding something like this. Now that you're a Christian, you need to stop being who you are because who you are is wrong. Um, And this is messaging that's most explicitly and often directed to the LGBT plus community. And it's extremely harmful and dangerous. So we are for individual external actions. We are for changing ourselves, right? And acting like we are in this new responsibility. But we are not for, certainly not here, not me, not different church. We are not here for saying you are fundamentally wrong, that there is something wrong with you. We are not here to shame people out of who they were created to be. So where can we take these verses if it's not in an explicitly like individual direction? We can take them in a communal direction. So through baptism, 
through starting a new life of faith, we are leaving one worldview and we pick up a new worldview. And our new worldview is shaped by love, justice, relationships, interdependence. Once we were fooled, right? We had this old worldview, this old type of humanity. And so we were fooled into a lot of things, <laughs> honestly. Fooled into believing that we can live life without depending on others. Fooled out of authentic relationships with people who look differently than us by promises of false safety. Fooled into keeping those people out, whoever they are, and only allowing the proper people, whatever that means, the proper people in. <clears throat> Fooled into valuing profit more than we value people. Fooled into valuing firm, solid theological answers more than valuing the sacred doubt that comes with our faith. And we've all been fooled, all of us in many different ways, and we continue to be sometimes. But what Paul is saying here and what we have to realize is true in our own lives is that we no longer have to live under sin's dominion. We don't actually live under that old worldview. Not in practice, who we let in. Not in belief, what we let in. Not, but also not in imagination, how we dream of the future and the church and the faith, how we imagine. And I'm not sure we understand like that part of the freedom we get as people of faith is freedom of imagination. That Have you ever considered that imagination is a spiritual tool that you have been given? That the church should be a place where we can dream together of what a truly inclusive and just world would look like and then actually start putting it into practice? Our faith community, what we have here, should be the place where we imagine the same gifts of freedom that we have been given applied to the entire world. And that's how we get from who we are now to who we hope to be and what we hope to be. We have to imagine intentionally so that we can take real actionable steps to becoming that kind of place. A space where all people are welcome, no matter their background, no matter what they believe, a space where people are celebrated for their uniqueness, and all of those who have been stifled or shamed in the past, they're given opportunities to shine and to lead others towards Jesus. Our baptism, our new life, our faith in Jesus, those things mean we don't have to conform to the status quo. We just don't. We are actually free from evil's grip. We're actually free to work towards a healthier world. We're actually free to use our imaginations for good. In our baptism, in that symbol, in our starting this journey of faith, or being on it at any point, we are choosing to die to sin. We are choosing to say no to Paul's question, should we keep on sinning so that God will continue to give us grace over and over? Well, of course the answer is no, we have a new status now. We have to act like it. And so when we say no to that question, we're choosing to die to sin. We're choosing to say that no longer will patriarchy or white supremacy or individualism or security or fear or greed or any other system that turns us against each other 
get to be the ruler of our hearts and our actions. The gift we receive from God is freedom. The opportunity to have a quality of life that advances human well-being rather than limiting it and suppressing it or destroying it. And so much of what it means to live in that freedom is made up of small and ordinary choices that we all can do. It's made up of things like what language we use, what relationships we build, where we put our money, what we say out loud, and when we bite our tongues what cultural and social norms that we disrupt. To think about our actions in this way, individually and collectively, this is to offer up our imaginations to God. To live this way, even in our tiniest of actions, is to offer up concrete daily living to God. To not say in general vague terms, I live for you, my life is yours, but to say, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing today. To love this way makes God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means to be a person of faith, to live in freedom from what oppresses us and to share that freedom in real concrete ways with others. So we're going to pray. <laughs> And then I'm going to send you out as we start the month of July. And I'm excited to see you in person <laughs> in just a few short weeks on July 12th um, because I have missed you terribly. <laughs> talking to myself <laughs> in a camera is not nearly as much fun as talking to all of you. So let's pray and then let's approach the second half of 2020 who knows what's in store, honestly. <laughs> but let's approach the second half of 2020 with new imagination and renewed resolve to live in our new worldview, to live in our new type of humanity, and to live in freedom. Let's pray. Children of God, the Spirit calls us into freedom. Let the reign of evil be cast away. Baptized into new life, God leads us in the work of love that transforms. Love confronts us. Love changes us. Love enables us to leave behind what is deadly to our souls. Through God's grace, we are able to perceive the possibilities of a world that is just. Unsatisfied with a culture around us that suppresses life, we will seek collective abundance. Come Holy Spirit and build your world anew. Amen. Until we see each other again, be safe, be healthy, and live in freedom. Bye, friends. Bye.